Good afternoon and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. And for today's movie, we continue our examination to films made in the last 10 years. And for today's episode, we shall talk about the 2016 Western mystery drama, The Hateful Eight, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino and starring Samuel L. Jackson, Kurt Russell, Walter Goggins, Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Leigh. Now, when Quentin Tarantino is attached to the project, we raise eyebrows and they're raised from curiosity and excitement. It's an establishment now. We associate his films with a unique style that Hitchcock got in the 60s. He's this generation's auteur that raises these barriers in these films and does so quite exclusively. And what I mean by that, he's already gone on record and said he'll only make 10 films. So when the eighth one was announced a couple of years after Django, there wasn't much time for excitement. It was just all hands on deck to see in what genre or story he would have gone for. Seaman, after Django, he only had three movies left. Assuming, of course, he's telling the truth, which I think he is. He believes that a director is like a boxer. They all have their time and then it's time to hang up their gloves or megaphone in the director's case. He believes he's still in the sweet spot at the moment and has still got a few more movies left. Now, after his ninth movie came out last year, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was a love letter to Hollywood, we're very anxious to know what genre his last movie will be. However, we're not here to talk about the ninth movie or his tenth movie or speculate about that. We're here to talk about the eighth movie, a mystery western set in a remote location where we don't know who is whom and what their true agenda is. It spells Agatha Christie. It spells a murder mystery, a Cluedo-esque movie in the hands and vision of Quentin Tarantino. And that is an exciting premise. Not only did he finally do a genre he considers one of the best in cinema, especially when he was growing up, westerns were always on TV. They were always the films to beat. Henry Fonda, John Wayne. But he managed to put his own flavour into it, and that is of the mystery genre. Kind of like how Christopher Nolan put his twist on the heist genre in Inception, or the spy genre in Tenet. This is Tarantino's twist on the mystery genre, this Agatha Christie, Cluedo-esque, you know, blend of mystery. Now, unfortunately for him, uh, this script was leaked before the film was ever released, or even started shooting filming. And uh, this was obviously really bad. And this angered Tarantino to the fact where he said, I'm not going to make this move anymore. Um, and he said, yeah, I'm going to make it into a novel now that everyone's read it. And he was very petty about it. I'm not going to make it now everyone's seen it. He's very, you know, protective of his work. However, when they script, um, they went to Comic-Con um, about six months after it was leaked. Um, and they did a script reading for it with all the actors that were going to play the roles. Um, and all the fan and actors were like, after the script reading is we have to make this movie. How can we not make this movie? The, it's amazing. The tone, the mystery, the enigma, where it's going, the revelation at the end. How can we not do it? And I think at the end, it was Sam Jackson who finally convinced him to do the movie. And I think with, you know, a few twists and turns and some pretty words, Quentin wanted to do it because, you know, he wanted to shoot a Western and Western movies have its certain style and iconography. And it's a genre he's uh, fantasized about doing for years. I mean, he kind of delved into it a bit with Django, but not the whole movie. You know, the wide shots, the secluded emptiness of the raw wasteland that is America, the imagery of mountain and horses, the familiar traits in the genre like cowboys, bounties, saloons. Or in this case, a haberdashery in the middle of nowhere that has become a safe house for eight strangers caught in the middle of a blizzard. And as Kurt Russell says, most enthralling in the film, someone is not who they say they are. And that sums up the whole movie. 
So I've brushed past the plot a little bit, but we have this backdrop of a Wyoming wintry outback, and it's set at some point after the Civil War. We're not sure how long after the Civil War, but we know it's come and gone recently. And one by one, we introduce to eight characters that all end up in a haberdashery for refuge because of this blizzard. And something seems to be going on here to aid a fugitive that is in the hands of John Roof, the hangman. But we're not sure who her accomplices are, or if there are any, in fact. And the film unfolds predominantly in this one setting, much like Reservoir Dogs, and much like Reservoir Dogs, we revisit this nostalgia with seeing familiar actors like Tim Roth and Michael Madsen again. And there's one thing Tarantino likes doing is using actors he knows well, and actors he know who knows his script. This is Samuel L. Jackson's sixth time working of Tarantino. However, this is the first time he has received top billing, basically meaning he's the main character in this movie. So Tarantino, being a big fan of the Western genre, was inspired from early TV shows like Bonanza and The Virginia. And he would say during the press release of this movie that he would love to go to a, you know, you, you just got, you would love to see this in the Western genre, how you would, um, what he loved about it is how you'd pass through a hallway through the show to find out if the character you were following was good or bad. And they all had a past, just a bunch of nefarious guys in a room all telling backstories that may be true or maybe not. And he loved that concept. And he said, well, trap them all in a room with a blizzard outside and give them guns and let's see what happens. And that's where the idea came from. Now, given the title, The Hateful Eight, there is actually, in fact, nine people trapped in the haberdashery, but we don't include the stage wagon driver, OB. He's basically the collateral damage in this movie. I mean, technically, there's 10 people there. Spoiler alert, by the way. But Channing Tatum's cameo in this movie was deliberately kept a secret, so the big reveal would be more shocking. Kind of like how Kevin Spacey's publicity for Seven at the end. He didn't go to any of the premieres, but, you know, they made sure that the ending for Seven was a shock. Kind of like the one for Hateful Eight. Now, if you're a Western fan or seen Once Upon a Time in the West, the casting could be more of a homage to the 1968 Western um, because Leon, um, Sergio Leon, casted Henry Fonda as the villain. And of course, at the time, Henry Fonda was known for playing heroes in most movies. In fact, all movies. And Leon said, imagine the audience reaction if you see Henry Fonda gunning down a child. It would be shocking. Saying that, though, Channing Tatum has played a villain in Public Enemies, but that was six years ago, and he's primarily known for playing the heroes or love interests in rom-com movies. So, the title, The Hateful Eight, was the first time, this is a really stupid fact, but this is the first time there was more than two words in a Tarantino title. But obviously, after that, he did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so it's just a random fact there. And another big influence for this movie was The Thing. In many ways that you can imagine, it strikes many similarities. Both plots are about a bunch of men that trust one another or have trust issues because of a hidden agenda. Both films even happen in a secluded, cold climate too. Kurt Russell is in both movies, and both movies were scored by Ennio Morricano. Ennio even used some of the score from The Thing for this movie. Tarantino even told the cast the only movie they need to prepare for for the roles in this film is to watch John Carpenter's The Thing. Apparently, Ennio was never going to work with Quentin after falling out with him during Django, but they must have made up and Quentin gave him full freedom to score this movie. Something a Tarantino movie has never got. All of his movies usually have tracks from songs that carry the movie, but this is the first time of his, or the first film of his, that has a score and guess what it was the film's only oscar win and it was ennio's only oscar win even with a decade or not even a decade even a career that spanned 60 years with iconic scores like the godfather the good the bad and the ugly 
And this is the film he won for. And he got a standing ovation <clears throat> when they read out his name. A man of his caliber not winning a single Oscar for the work he has produced in 60 years was blasphemy. So when his name was read out for winning for this movie, the crowd went wild. It was a fantastic achievement. It really, the, the, the score he did, it's a, it really captures the enigmatic atmosphere in this movie. So the film started off as a direct sequel to Django Unchained since it happened in the same universe as Django, even though it's not a direct sequel. And it's around about the same period as well as Django. Even as two of the, you know, you've still got two of the same actors from the previous movies in this movie, Sam Jackson and Walter Goggins. However, in Hateful Eight, they both play good guys, not bad guys. But yeah, the concept started from a novel called Django in White Hell. However, the novel didn't really materialise and Tarantino realised the genre won't work if the audience already know who Django is, knowing that he's already a good guy, not a character you felt was fairly sure would survive. So he then realised that what he needed to make this work was to remove the character of Django. Now, if you didn't know that, but have a good eye, you will have a really good eye when watching movies, you may have assumed this because there, as ever, are some subtleties or hidden cameos from Django movies in this movie. For one, the opening scene is usually the most revealing in mystery movies, and in that scene we see Sam Jackson, Major Warren, sitting on top of three corpses and a saddle, which is the saddle owned by Django. Now, yes, I know what you're saying, how the hell we meant to know it's a saddle, but it's there, it's the same one, and they make no mistake in not showing you. The second is easier to spot. The green jacket he wears in Django is on the floor in Minnie's haberdashery, hinting that Django has been there before. And third, if you wanted to really stretch it, Walter Goggins' character is called Hillbilly in both movies, maybe indicating he is the same character, and in fact is not Chris Mannix, and even more, not going to be the Sheriff of Red Rock. But in Sam Jackson's character, we believe he's a new character. But Walter, Barrett, Walter Goggins may be the same character, we don't know. And you know, it's never actually confirmed if he's lying or not in the film about being the Sheriff of Red Rock. I mean, we assume he's telling the truth because of his alien, you know, he allies up with Sam Jackson at the end, but... It's been told it's up to our interpretation whether he was telling the truth or not. We just don't know. I mean, another story never confirmed to be true or not is Major Marquis Warren's claiming to kill and sexually assault General Smithers' son. I mean, people speculate that he was telling the truth, but did so, you know, maybe he was lying just so, you know, in, to just entice uh, General Smithers. But he did so in self-defense after all. He had a bounty on his head in the South. So it's kind of believable that maybe he did. And, you know, he was being hunted by his son because he had a bounty on his head and had to kill him. Whether the way he killed him was elaborated or not, we don't know. The more common belief is he didn't know his son and he made up the story to antagonize Sandy Smithers so he could draw his weapon, which is what we assume. But we don't know. He might be telling the truth with this, you know, elaborate story. We don't know. And it's a very similar you know, method uh, to another work of Tarantino, the famous monologue in True Romance between Christopher Walken and Dennis Hoppers about Sicilian, which I think is one of the greatest interactions between two characters on screens ever. And how the descendants of black Africans who bred with their female ancestors and both that and both those speeches, um, the one in Hateful Eight and True Romance, both play on the racism card of the listener in order to provoke a violent reaction from them. And it's also perhaps a little nod to True Romance in which, you know, because Tarantino wrote it as well. So he wanted to sort of remind audiences that, you know, I wrote this film as well. Go watch it. Also, you could compare the story to Reservoir Dogs too, a group of men trapped in one location trying to find out who the rat is. So Tarantino sort of dips his toes into sections of his previous works every now and again. And you can see that from those like, monologues. A battle, you know, between... The North and the South, the Resistance and the Confederacy, and Minnie's haberdashery acting as this place of sanctum for these 
once enemies. I just love that idea. It's always nice to see Tarantino put these people that were in war, but changing the circumstances to see how the sides are picked. And I think it's an important message here to see that the polar opposites of the two opposing sides are the ones that come together to defeat this Domingue gang at the end, the black guy and the hillbilly. Just like how the white guy helps Django uh, Christoph Waltz, or how Stiglitz and von Hammersmith helps the American in Glorious Bastards, two Nazis helping the Americans. It represents a deeper evil than the brutality of the wars that have happened in the past. And I love seeing Tarantino playing around with this idea of more evil, that there's a more evil thing happening in the world, and it brings together enemies in nature. And I love that idea. And he seems to do that a few times in his movies. Now, most mystery films, um, if you keep your eyes open, you may notice a thing or two, some obvious and some not too obvious, but some try to deviate your attention away from the mystique of the operation. So one thing I noticed, and I regrettably noticed it on the fifth or maybe fourth viewing of the movie. And I love these moments because it's the attention to detail in the work, clues that you missed before, but notice again when you watch it a second time, which is why I always tend to watch uh, films more than once because you may have missed something, especially Tarantino movies because especially a mystery genre as well. Most especially in a mystery genre is, um, you know, because you know whom is whom now, you know where the story is going, you know what's happening, you know all the climax. So watching it a second time, you start to notice those people's a little bit more. But when Daisy and Ruth first enter the establishment, um, Oswaldo, played by Tim Roth, looks over to Joe Gage a few times before following Ruth around the place. And at this point, I mean, if you've watched it a second time, you know both of these guys are guilty. You know they're there for her. And it's Oswaldo that directs Ruth to the coffee beans. And when he turns his back, notice how he is about to shoot him from his posture. And Daisy notices this and steps in between them. So, you know, to, to say, no, don't do it, to stop it. And then covertly mentions, there are more people outside. I can't believe I missed that before. And it's such an interesting observation. And it's amazing how you don't notice it the first time. Of course, all of this is done to await a better time for the gang to kill Ruth and the other bystanders, innocent or not. And later we find his name out to be Pete Hickox. Now, if you get the reference, the character Tim Roth plays is the great-grandfather of Michael Fassbender's character, Lieutenant Archie Hickox, in Inglorious Bastards. Another thing Tarantino likes to add in there, and like in Reservoir Dogs, Tim Roth is shot in the stomach and bleeding out in both films. He turns out to be the rat in both films as well. Or someone with something to hide in both films is probably more accurate than the rat in this film. You also have a really strange moment where you have Bruce Stern's character look directly at the camera a few times right at the beginning, which is odd, but it also adds to this strange atmosphere in the haberdashery that not everything is what it seems. Every one of the hateful eight, which is Warren, Ruth, Domague, Mannix, Bob, Mowbray, Gage and General Smithers, is shot. All eight of them are shot. The movie is two hours, 48 minutes long. One of Tarantino's longest movies. Three hours if you've seen it with the intermissions, which happens right after John Ruth is killed. With that running time being said, there isn't actually any on-screen killing until one hour and 35 minutes into the movie. This, of course of the movie happens with events that happen throughout one day. Everything happens throughout one day. After that, every single one of the hateful eights gets shot in the end. Warren, Roof, Domingue, Mannix, Box, Oswaldo Gage and General Smithers. Half of them, in fact, have appeared in uh, you know several Marvel Universe films. I mean, if you could, you could do this in most movies now because Marvel Universe is such an expansion of actors. I mean, you've got Goggins as an Ant-Man, Cat Russell as in Guardians 2, Tim Roth as in The Incredible Hulk, and of course, Nicholas uh, Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. I mean... 
the movie was shot in 65 millimeters, which is the same lens used to shoot the chariot of uh, the chariot scene in um, Ben Hur. They are basically anamorphic lenses with an aspect ratio of like 2.76 or something like that. It's an ultra wide ratio that was used on a few films in the 50s and 60s, like uh, Rain Tree County, Ben Hur, Mutiny on the Balcony, um, The Great Story Ever Told, and they enhanced the wide shot basically. And the the wide shots are famous trademarks of Western, so it's no wonder he wanted to sort of reignite this method of filming. However, the entire movie was shot like this, not just a few scenes like in Ben-Hur. But this film, it's a hidden gem of his collection, this film. And what I mean by that, it's overlooked. It's truly a great film, which brings Tarantino back to his good old days of film. And the budget was quite big, $44 million, but managed to, you know, he made three times that back in the box office. It was once again nominated for Best Supporting Role, Best Supporting Actress this time for Jennifer, Jennifer Janet Lee. She didn't win, however, but continues this trend of Tarantino getting nominations for Best Supporting Roles. Christoph Waltz won both in Glorious Bastards and Django. Jennifer for this, and Brad Pitt ended up winning his last year for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for Best Supporting Actor. Ennio, of course, finally winning for this film, and the only other uh, nomination this film got was for cinematography, which, of course, with the 65mm lens they chose to shoot it in. I mean, this film stands high on my list for films that came out in this decade because it doesn't allow to be influenced by anything other than his own work. Reservoir Dogs and Ennio Steam from the, the the Thing, where an actor from that movie is the lead in this. And from these formulas, they've created a gem of a movie that raises some interesting themes that everyone in the West is, you know, is grim and morally needs to take a front seat no matter where you came from. It's hard to really relate any of these characters of being the good guy here. I mean, that's probably why it's called the hateful eight. They're all as bad as each other with their own agendas, hence the title. But the message is that we are all human and we're all made from the same thing, no matter which side you fought in the war. And it's how you have the dignity and respect to put the differences aside to fight something that is morally wrong. And I believe Tarantino nailed this sort of message with this movie covered in the mystery genre and with the famous backdrop of the Western genre. But listen, I just honestly think, I mean, with films like Pulp Fiction that he's done Reservoir Dogs and now more contemporarily with um, Django and um, Inglorious Bastards, these films are sort of very high up in um, Tarantino's sort of fan base. But The Hateful Eight, for me, is probably one I would consider a hidden gem. It's not one that is appealing at first. I mean, it's Tarantino and he's established that, of course, we're going to love his film, but it isn't as far down in his list as you would see him. I think it's one of his best movies, just in terms of the style he shot it in, the pacing, the tone. I mean, the performances are great. And I love that he's gone back to the Reservoir Dogways, shooting in like one predominant location, one specific location. And then you have this idea of someone not telling the truth and we don't know who it is. I just love that he's gone back to his old old ways. And it's original because he's going back to his own methods, which is why he's so famous because he has a unique uh, trademark a unique style but listen anyways that's all i have time for with the hateful eight truly an underlooked film of the decade but enough to watch because of the establishment of tarantino his stab on mystery may set the bench line in that genre and just many to come i mean the mystery genre isn't one that is truly done enough i mean knives out came out and they did Murder on the Orient Express, but I think more needs to be done of like original work. Knives Out was original, and I, I think everyone loved it. And I think everyone loved it because not in many mystery genres have come out. So I think you know Knives Out and The Hateful Eight are a good indication of where we might be going now in the mystery genre. Um, but yes, anyway, 
that's why I thought it'd be high, uh, very important to highlight this movie as one of the best from the last decade. But anyway, please subscribe to me on Google, iTunes, and Spotify. And I'm um, also on Instagram, Film Exploration AH, or lowercase or one word. And thank you again for listening to The Hateful Eight with Ash Hurry.